Okay. Hello, brothers and sisters. Well, we have now passed a full month of not gathering together for worship on the Lord's Day. I hope you are still taking seriously the call uh, to set aside Sunday mornings at 1030 uh, to worship within your household. Um, and to not just listen to the sermon, but to also spend time in prayer and singing as well. Uh, I assume that you have done so uh, prior to listening to me now. I hope uh, you especially enjoyed uh, the rendition of uh, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. Uh, wasn't that a great uh, song that we uh, were able to sing together there um, on video, of course? Uh, I enjoyed uh, picking that one out for you. And I don't know about you, uh, but singing great biblically rich hymns has helped me to cope with our situation. It has filled me with hope, and so I strongly recommend it to you as well. Now, I would encourage you to uh, get out your Bibles. Uh, if you have to, to pause the recording for a moment in order to find your Bible, then, then, then please go ahead and do that. Uh, that's one of the benefits of uh, listening to a recorded sermon. Uh, but find your Bible and turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 20. And we're getting back to this series of sermons that uh, I'm calling Hope in God. Sermons to help us to hope in God during this crisis. And we have been in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, next week, however, we're going to be doing something different. We will be in a, in a different text anyway. Uh, same series of uh, sermons, but a different text. I'm leaning towards the Psalms, but haven't quite made the decision yet as to where we'll be next week. But th this week, Philippians chapter 4 and verses 10 through 20. I'm going to read that now. So this is the word of the Lord. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. 
But Lord, would you incline our hearts toward your testimonies and not towards our own selfish gain. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things in your word and satisfy us with your steadfast love so that we would praise you and be content in you all of our days. In Christ's name we pray, amen. When we are in a time such as we are all in now, and we know it is most definitely a historical moment, one that we and our children will all look back on and talk about for years to come, it's good for us to look back and get some historical perspective from other times when there may have been similar things happening. And that's definitely the case with our nation. Maybe some of you have heard about uh, the Spanish flu epidemic, which occurred in our nation in the fall of 1918. No one knows for sure how many people in our nation were infected with uh, the virus, but estimates are that there were deaths in our country because of it, 675,000 deaths in our country. Just, just think of that number compared to what we have been hearing about the projections for the coronavirus, 675,000 dead from the Spanish flu. Once that virus began to spread in the early fall of 1918, states, cities, and local districts began to take action to stop the spread of the virus, much like our governments have done today. Uh, this week, I read a sermon that was preached in a church in Washington, D.C., the first Sunday after the church was allowed to gather again after not being able to, uh, to uh, gather together because uh, of the pandemic in 1918. Now remember, uh, they didn't have the internet, and so they couldn't record sermons and then email it out to their church members during the weeks that they were not allowed to meet. So in Washington, D.C., they, they couldn't meet for a little over a month, and the pastor of the church was uh, Francis Grimke, and this is some of what he shared with his congregation in his sermon on that first Sunday back. He, he opened this way. We now know, perhaps as we have never known before, the meaning of the terms pestilence, plague, epidemic. Since we have been passing through this terrible scourge of Spanish influenza, with its enormous death rate and its consequent wretchedness and misery. Every part of the land has felt its deadly touch, north, south, east, and west, in the army, navy, among civilians, among all classes and conditions, rich and poor, high and low, white and black. Over the whole land it has thrown gloom and has stricken down such large numbers that it has been difficult to care for them properly, overcrowding all of our hospitals. And it has proven fatal in so many cases that it has been difficult at times to get coffins enough in which to place the dead and men enough to dig graves fast enough in which to bury them. Our own beautiful city has suffered terribly from it, making it necessary as a precautionary measure to close the schools, theaters, churches, 
and to forbid all public gatherings within doors as well as outdoors. At last, however, the scourge has been stayed, and we are permitted again to resume the public worship of God and to open again the schools of our city. Now, this all sounds very familiar to us, doesn't it? You know, one word that we have heard quite often used over and over again to describe the crisis that we are in is the word unprecedented. We are in unprecedented times, we've heard. Uh, This pandemic is unprecedented. What's good for us to be reminded that actually this kind of thing has happened before, although yes, never before in our lifetimes. Even the oldest member of our congregation was born six years after the Spanish flu pandemic. But believers have lived through such times before. Pastor Grimke, in the sermon, went on to reflect further about the government orders that they were under for closing schools, theaters, and churches, even having to limit the number of those who could attend funerals. And he goes on to say this, The ground of the exercise of this extraordinary power was found in the imperative duty of the officials to safeguard as far as possible the health of the community by preventing the spread of of the disease from which we, we were suffering. There has been considerable grumbling, I know, on the part of some, particularly in regard to the closing of churches. It seems to me, however, in a matter like this, it is always wise to submit to such restrictions for the time being. If, as a matter of fact, it was dangerous to meet in theaters and in the schools, it certainly was no less dangerous to meet in churches. The fact that the churches are places of religious gathering and the others not, would not affect in the least the health question involved. If avoiding crowds lessens the danger of being infected, it was wise to take the precaution and not needlessly run in danger and expect God to protect us. And then he went on to say this, God knows what he is doing. His work is not going to suffer. It will rather be a help to it in the end. Out of it, I believe, great good is coming. All the churches, as well as the community at large, are going to be stronger and better for this season of distress through which we have been passing. Now, what struck me as I read those words this week was, first, how similar it feels to what we have been experiencing here. Maybe in particular his mention of the considerable grumbling at not being able to gather together as a church. I know I have been grumbling over that. But the second thing is, is of course, the great difference in perspective of someone who knows Christ and believes that God knows what he is doing, and is sovereign over such a huge crisis that he then can be content to wait upon the Lord and to have hope that the Lord is still able to bring great good through such a trial. Friends, that kind of response can really only come from someone who knows Christ to be far greater than any trouble we could face in this fallen world. When Christ is big in your life, it is noticeable. You will stand out a bit from others, even 
others from within your own church. You will seem a bit strange, but there will be, there will be clear signs that others around you will definitely notice. Our passage in Philippians 4 shows us two of those signs quite clearly. So we're going to spend the rest of our time focusing on, on them here in Philippians 4, 10 through 20. Our main theme for our text is that when Christ is big in our life, it will be seen by our generosity and our contentment in any circumstance. Again, that main theme is when Christ is big in our life, it will be seen by our generosity and our contentment in any circumstance. So first, we're, we're going to look at verses 11 through 13. I'm going to focus on, on these verses probably most here. Uh, 11 through 13, and the heading over that is when Christ is big in our life, we will be content in every circumstance. Now, the context of these verses is that Paul is acknowledging and thanking the Philippians for a gift that they had sent to him. And in verse 18, Paul mentions that they had sent a man named Epaphroditus, that he had brought him the gift. Now, Paul was in prison, and in those days, prisoners did not receive three meals each day plus medical care from the state-sponsored prison. No, no, prisoners were dependent upon family members or friends to provide them with food and other necessities while, uh, 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 while they were trying to survive there in the prison. So it seems the Philippians had heard about Paul's situation and possibly took, a, took up a, a collection and provided some financial support for Paul while he was suffering in prison. But in response, Paul uses the opportunity to share with the Philippians that though he is grateful for the gift, even if they would not have been able to provide anything for him, that he knows the Lord would have still sustained him. For as he says here, verses 11 through 13, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now know that this is something Paul has learned, he says. It is not something that he always had. He's not just one of those guys that is generally not inclined to uh, be fearful uh, or, or to worry about his situation. No, no, this is something that he learned. And note that it isn't something that he learned because he had to, since he was so poor. Now, this kind of contentment is not a lesson that can only be learned when you are in a situation of poverty or severely lacking resources, and so, you know, you just have to make do with what you have. No, no. Notice here it says, he's learned this contentment in times of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That is, in any and every circumstance. If you were to read the book of Acts and then read Paul's letters to the churches, especially 1 and 2 Corinthians, you would gain an understanding of some of the times of hunger and need that Paul is referring to here. Some of the very low and terrible times in Paul's life of serving the Lord, 
in writing to the church in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 11, so 1 Corinthians 4, verse 11, Paul shares a glimpse into his present situation there. He says, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our hands. And then in the second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four and following, Paul describes some of his sufferings while serving the Lord as an apostle. This is in 2 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 24. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. And then he goes on to say, In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. So when Paul says, in any and every circumstance, those are the kinds of circumstances that he was referring to. Yet he is content. Yet he is at peace. Again, we have to ask, how? Is he just one of those Stoics? who were popular in his day in Greece, who taught that you just need to, to grin and bear it, you know, just keep a stiff upper lip and never allow yourself to feel much of anything, either highs or lows? Well, that kind of contentment is based on self-reliance, believing that you have the strength and resources within yourself to endure whatever life throws at you. So is that what Paul is Referring to here in, in Philippians 4? Well, that is kind of an American ideal, isn't it? Especially one here in the Midwest. You know, just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, grin and bear it, just keep fighting no matter how big the trouble you are facing. I've heard many, uh, a, a person growing up here who's talked about their life in, in such a way that they have just learned to you know, grin and bear it, do the work, get up in the morning, continue to, to go to work, and that they have survived, again, by relying on their own strength. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. That's not the kind of contentment he is referring to. No, no. Paul lets us in on this secret of contentment in verse 13. And we shouldn't be surprised. It is not self-sufficiency. It is instead Christ-sufficiency. The secret is not independence. It is total dependence on Christ Jesus. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I know this is a popular verse, one that we teach our children to memorize, uh, one that I have seen printed on posters marketed to Christians with a picture of a young man lifting weights. You know, I can do all things like bench 250 pounds through him who strengthens me. And we really shouldn't laugh because you know, maybe we have gone to that verse and tried to motivate ourselves to believe we could get that job that we wanted or that promotion that we want or even, even drive through a snowstorm by telling ourselves I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
well, I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but this verse isn't, but this verse is controlled by the context that it's in. And the context is referring to contentment in the midst of changing circumstances. Trusting Christ when you have lost your job. And also remembering to trust Christ when you receive that promotion you were hoping for. This is referring to depending upon Christ for your strength, for your hope, because he will never change. Your circumstances, however, will change, like they have for all of us in the last month. So what would it take to have the same mindset? Again, we would need to understand the context of this statement by Paul. Paul is saying, because of what he knows about Christ, that he is able to be content in any and every circumstance. Well then, what is it that Paul knows about Christ which gives him strength to be content like this? Well, there are many passages we could look at in Philippians where, where Paul talks about Jesus, what he knows about Jesus, what he puts faith in about Jesus. But if we go to just two places, I think we'll get a good understanding of, of how big Christ is in Paul's life. First, go to Philippians chapter 1. So Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to look at verse 21, another uh, uh, more well-known verse here in Philippians. Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. And in this context, again, Paul, Paul was in prison. He wasn't sure if he would be executed or not. He, he didn't believe he would at that time, but, but he very well could have been. And here is what he says about that prospect in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Christ so, was so big in Paul's life that his entire life was summed up in him. Paul lived for Christ. He lived to serve Christ. He knew he had received eternal life from Christ, and therefore he lived to make much of Jesus Christ, whether in prison or free, whether in abundance or in need. For many of us, Christ may not be what we would use to finish that same phrase. For me to live is what? Blank. Would it be, you know, for me to live is making money? Would it be for you, for, for me to live is seeing my children succeed? For me to live is, is my work? For me to live is sports? If we would finish that sentence in any other way but Christ, then that would mean Christ isn't that big in your life. That sports is bigger, or your children's success is bigger, or your work, or your career is bigger than Christ. But the problem with that way of living is, of course, those things can all change. This pandemic has shown us pretty clearly those things can all be taken away from us. Those things are all way too small to truly make us content. But Christ is bigger. Christ will never change. Christ will always be faithful to his promises. For in Philippians chapter 2, 
verses 9 and 10. That's, a, that's the second place we're going to go look here. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. We also learn this about what Paul knew about Christ. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Christ, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When Christ is big in our life, we will be content in every circumstance. Even if we die. For again, Paul said, to die is gain. Why? Then I'll be with Christ. Which is far better. So when Christ is big in our life, we'll be content in every circumstance for we'll be able to trust him and lean on him. And secondly, when Christ is big in our life, we will generously support gospel workers. Again, back to Philippians 4, and we're going to look at verses 10. So that's the first verse, verse 10 of our passage, and then verses 14 through 18 here. When Christ is big in our life, we will generously support gospel workers. In these verses, Paul is rejoicing over the fact that the Philippian believers had, as he put it, revived your concern for me. They, they, they had done this, again, by presenting Paul with, with gifts through Epaphroditus, who delivered them to Paul while he was in prison. And Paul sees this as a part of the partnership, uh, the word could also be, be, be translated as fellowship, that they have with him in his gospel work. They have a record of giving gifts of support to Paul. Now, early on in their partnership, they gave not just one gift, but, but two while he was planting uh, the church in the city of, Th- of uh, Thessalonica. And Paul's making clear that he's not rejoicing over receiving the gifts themselves. Again, he's learned to be content in any circumstance. If they wouldn't have given him anything, he knows that the Lord would have provided for him in another way. But rather, Paul is rejoicing here as to what their giving reveals about their faith in Christ. What it is saying about their growth in the faith, or their progress and joy in the faith, as Paul mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 25. So let's look again, first at verse 10. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So the word here, revive, can be, can be also translated as blossomed. It is a word that we'd use to describe what we see happening in our gardens and in our flower beds today on this, on this warm, sunny spring day. Those perennial flowers have been there all fall and winter long, lying dormant, under the ground and under the snow, but, but now that the, that the sun has come out, they have revived again. They have blossomed, and we can enjoy their colors. That is like the concern that the Philippians had for Paul. It, it, it was always there, but it was just lying dormant because, as he says, they had no opportunity to express their concern for him. Uh, probably because they didn't know where he was. I mean, he, he uh, traveled around a lot or, or maybe because they, they had gone through a time where they just didn't have 
any finances to, to share with him, but they hadn't forgotten about him. Their love for the Lord had continued to grow, and <clears throat> Paul says it had now just recently blossomed in this gift that they had provided for Paul. And I look down at verses 17 and 18 here. It says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul recognized that the reason they were willing to sacrifice in order to continue this financial partnership in the gospel with Paul was because Jesus had become big in their lives. Jesus was big in their church. And because Jesus was big, they knew they could make these kinds of of financial sacrifices to support the continuing spread of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire. Giving to the church is a sacrifice. Financially supporting missionaries and gospel work is a financial sacrifice, especially in times like we are in now. We know that, that this year is going to be a hard year financially all across the spectrum. It will be in those moments where we will see just how big Jesus really is in our life. We were given one last word here that should encourage us, that should build up our faith when we are facing uncertainty uh, in these days. It's in verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. And here we'll see that when Christ is big in our life, we will be confident in God's care for his church. Look at verses 19 and 20. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember in verse 18, Paul referred to their gift as a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. So Paul sees their gift to him as a gift to God. For it's God's work that he's been doing. He is the Lord's servant. By being generous to him, Paul says, they're being generous toward God. And then those who are generous toward God will find that God is generous toward them and will supply their every need. Now, let's not get led away from what the Bible really means here. I hate the teaching that is so prominent in our country and on so-called Christian television networks that would take verses like this and say, if you give your money to God, which for them would mean give your money to them, to their, to their ministries, then God will make you rich and will supply you with material blessings. This teaching is called the prosperity gospel, which focuses on God's blessings as mainly material things, wealth, homes, jewelry, private planes, cars, 
And you can usually tell a prosperity gospel preacher or a program from a mile away because of how, how gaudy they dress and how much makeup the women have on. But Paul is not saying that God will supply the believers in this church here with material riches. That's not what he's saying. Look at the verse again in verse 19. It says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Again, it will be according to his riches, God's riches, in glory in Christ Jesus. These are mainly spiritual blessings. When they give to the Lord's work, they are, as the Lord said elsewhere, storing up treasure in heaven. And the Lord will supply them with what they need to continue to live for him in this life and in the next. He will give them mercies that are new every morning. He will provide spiritual strength for them to face the temptations and trials and to overcome them as they lean on his everlasting arms. God will give them such a close relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ that Christ will become so big in their lives that they will be able to endure any trial that comes to them and come out the other side of that trial stronger in the faith, more humble, more patient, more kind and loving and gentle and self-controlled and far more righteous and Christ-like. And they will also have been given strong, supportive relationships with other true believers, of whom also know Christ to be big in their lives. They will then be empowered to do far more good for the kingdom and thus to have far more joy, both in this life and in the next. That's what Paul means. That according to God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Just as Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 29 and 30, he said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Brothers and sisters, is Christ big in your life? Have you put his will above your own? Are you willing to trust him with everything? Your future? Your family? Your finances? Your life? Do you believe his word regarding what you will receive in return if you would? Check your contentment now with your life situation. And check how willing you have been to give towards the work of the gospel. Those are both 
indications of where Christ ranks in your life. How big you believe him to actually be. God's word here is promising much help. Having every need of yours supplied according to his riches in glory. But know that it will come in and through your faith in Christ Jesus. If you are not living by faith in Christ, if you have not admitted that you really are a sinner who can't make yourself good or do enough good to earn God's favor, then know that according to God's word, you cannot expect any blessing from God, for you are still under his just wrath for your sins. So throw yourself on the grace and mercy that are in Christ Jesus. Believe that he has accomplished all that was necessary for you to be forgiven and reconciled to God. Begin to read his word and there see how big and great he is, able to utter a simple command to still the storm and the raging sea, able to to, to give a command and cause dead men and women to be raised to life again, and able himself to defeat death and hell by rising up from the dead after being crucified. Bow down to the one who holds the keys of death and hell and who will come again to judge the living and the dead and who will reign forever at the right hand of God over his kingdom which will never come to an end. Let us pray. O Lord Jesus, we praise and honor you. We confess that we have made other things bigger in our lives than you. Forgive us, O Lord, and open our eyes to see you, to know you for who you really are, and help us to trust you to do a good work even in the midst of times of trouble like we are currently in. You are the Lord, you are God, and you are our Savior. And it is in the sovereign name of the Lord Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all, both now and for all time. Amen.